Well, this morning we're going to 2 Kings chapter 14. We're continuing to work our way through, uh, chapter by chapter, through 2 Kings. And we're in a part of 2 Kings, just to give a little bit of context to it again, in which uh, the nation of Israel has divided into these two kingdoms. So the nation of Israel to the north, the nation of Judah to the south. And the section of 2 Kings that we've been in has been a section in which we've been kind of bouncing back and forth between these kingdoms, between these kings, taking a look at which kings were faithful, which kings disobeyed. And of course, last week we saw the passing of Elisha, which is really a kind of pivotal moment in the book, as now the ministries of Elijah and then Elisha have come to an end. And we move into a section where now these kings, some of them have prophetic voices, some of them do not. But we get the series of stories, most of them small and compact, about how each of these kings, both in the north and in the south, either obeyed or disobeyed God. Today in chapter 14, we're looking at two kings, Amaziah, who is king of Judah to the south, that'll be the first king we read about, and then Jeroboam II, the second of Jeroboam, who's reigning in Israel to the north. As we've been looking at these kings, suddenly one of the themes that's been emerging is typically these northern kings seem to be disobedient and hostile to God, and often it's the southern kings that seem to be at least aware, if not sympathetic, to God. Uh, It's not always been that way, but it's come with enough consistency that one of the traps you can fall into reading 2 Kings is start to believe that, oh, all of the northern kings are bad and all of the southern kings are somehow good. After all, Judah, the line of David, these kings that are still ruling under his throne, obviously they must be somehow God's prized or chosen nation. After all, Jerusalem and the temple is in Judah. Perhaps God is more with them than he is these northern kings of Israel. But one of the things chapter 14 does is it keeps us from jumping too quickly to those kinds of conclusions. It teaches us that God is always present, always willing to save and intervene and act, He plays no favorites. No one gets away with anything simply because they have the right family name or the right history or belong to the right place. But instead, every king is forced to acknowledge their true dependence on God and to be tested in their willingness to serve and to worship him. So in some ways, what 2 Kings 14 does is it flips that. It gives us these two kings and maybe stories we didn't expect and helps us recognize Not to be so quick about drawing conclusions, but to pay closer attention to what God is doing. 2 Kings chapter 14. I'm going to read through the whole chapter with us. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 1. In the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did in all things as Joash his father had done. But the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And as soon as the royal power was firmly in his hands, he struck down his servants, whom had struck down the king his father. But he did not put to death the children of the murderers, according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sins. He struck down 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took Selah by storm and called it Jachthil, which is its name to this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Joash, the son of Jehoaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel. So this is the southern king sending messages to the northern king, saying, 
Come, let us look one another in the face. And Jehoash, king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, king of Judah, a thistle on Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son for a wife. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. You have indeed struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Be content with your glory, and stay at home. For why should you provoke trouble so that you fall, you and Judah, with you? But Amaziah would not listen. So Jehoash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his home. And Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and came to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits from Ephraim gate to the corner gate. And he seized all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house also, hostages. And he returned to Samaria. Now the rest of the acts of Joash that he did and his might and how he fought with Amaziah king of Judah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Joash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel, and Jeroboam his son reigned in his place. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Joash, son of Jehoaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the deeds of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. And they brought him on horses, and he was buried in Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. The final king, the second one we look at, Jeroboam II. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. You've got all these names straight at this point, right? So you're making a list. He began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned for 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the borders of Israel from, Leb- from Lebamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had said that he would not blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he fought and how he restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah in Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. 2 Kings chapter 14. Well, let me work back through that with slightly fewer names and try to highlight the details of these two kings so you can get a picture of them. The first of these kings we encounter is the king of Judah, that nation to the south, its capital in Jerusalem. Amaziah is the son of Joash. If you remember a couple of chapters ago, we looked at Joash's rise to power. Remember, it's confusing because there's a Joash in the north and the south. But in the south, this Joash rose to power as a child. 
He had been protected by a priest hidden away in the temple because of threats to his life. And when he was old enough, the priest brought him out into the temple courtyard and he was crowned and made king there of Judah. He was reestablished as the rightful ruler under the line of David. So you have Joash, this child king, rising in power, but he was eventually assassinated as an adult. His son, who we read about today, Amaziah, stepped in and took his place, so continuing this line of David amongst the kings in Judah. This growing risk of assassinations and the son replacing the king afterwards was turning into a kind of cycle playing out with these family feuds probably within the palace itself. We've seen them now in a few succession of kings. Joash was hidden as a child, but when he was an adult, he was assassinated. And so his son comes to power, Amaziah. And as Amaziah comes to power, one of the first things he does is vindicate, avenge his father's death by executing his father's assassins. So you see the way the cycles are playing out. But we're specifically told here that Amaziah does not go so far as to put to death all of those associated with the assassination of his father. Instead, he does not assassinate the children. Now, that might not seem like a lot to us, but in the ancient world, that was thought of as a foolish act, a kind of unwise restraint. After all, you ran the risk of those sons growing up to try to avenge their father like you just tried to avenge your father. There was an ancient Greek saying that put it this way, fool who has murdered the sire and left the sons to avenge him. After all, that's Amaziah's own story, a son who grows up to avenge his father's death. And so Amaziah spares these sons who might risk later on avenging their father's death against him. But Amaziah does it not because he's weak or intimidated. He does it because he's checked by his faithfulness to the law. Amaziah is familiar with the passage from the law of Moses that instructs that the children of a man are not to be executed for their father's crimes. And so it is, Amaziah seems, by this first act of his consolidated power, to be somebody intent on preserving both justice, but also the law, faithfulness to God. Our first impression is not bad. Here's a guy who seems like a man of action, determined, willing to put to death those through justice that have committed acts, but with restraint, control, obedience to the law. In the second story that we learn about Amaziah, he goes to war with the nation of Edom, Edom being to the east and to the south. Edom, a long time ago in 2 Kings, had been one of the client nations of Judah. They had been required for Judah's protection to pay gold and silver and crops. But during the changes of kings in Judah, Edom had rebelled and left, no longer willing to settle the arrangement. So Amaziah decides to reestablish that full territory, all of the glory that his fathers before him of Judah had had. So he goes down and attacks Edom and defeats Edom in battle and is so successful that he goes all the way and takes the capital city of Salah, which is our modern day Petra, the city you've seen pictures of, that, that city carved into the stones in the deserts. The Judah had gone so far as to capture the capital city of Edom. And once again, we start thinking, pretty impressive. He's obeying the law, he's driven and active, and he's reestablishing all of the glory of Judah back to it. He must have thought so too. After he has these victories, after he begins renaming these cities, these capitals that he's captured, he decides to take a third step. Amaziah, the king of Judah, sends a message to Joash, king of Israel, come, let us look one another in the face. Some of the other translations put it a little more simply, come, Let us face each other in battle. 
In other words, Amaziah decides to threaten Israel. He decides to challenge Israel to war, to conflict between these two nations of Israel. Now, we've had a lot of war in 2 Corinthians we've looked at, but this is something that's entirely new. We've never had the two nations of Israel fighting one another outside of when that original break happened between the two nations. But here we have one Israelite king, the king of Judah, challenging and threatening the nation of Israel and another king. So what's Amaziah's motive for this sudden change to attack what in the past has been an ally? It doesn't seem to be about land. He doesn't seem desperate to claim some city back to his own kingdom. It doesn't seem to be about resources, gold or water or animals as some of the wars we've seen before. It doesn't even really seem to be about religion or purifying worship or removing the idols. After all, he hasn't even really done that from his own nation. The only thing we know about his motive is Amaziah wanted to face off. He wanted to challenge a king face to face. Joash, the king of Israel, seems to understand what might have been going on with his motives. He pushes back and offers a warning. He says to Amaziah, you are like a thistle making a demand of me a cedar. The image is something like, you're a bush trying to boss around a giant oak tree. In other words, he pushes back on this growing pride, this growing sense of capability that he senses in the king of Judah. But he goes on to offer a warning, another piece to that analogy. When a wild beast will come along and trample the thistle underfoot. Joash seems to understood what was really at stake in this moment. As Amaziah was running around making challenges and picking fights, his own pride swelling into these moments of conquest, Joash recognized that the real threat was not one another, but this third party, a beast who was about to come along and trample the thistle under its feet. Joash may have been talking about the nation of Syria, which we've seen time after time after time, chapter after chapter, chapter has been an enemy to Israel, but also Judah. But it's also likely that Joash is beginning to recognize the growing power of Assyria, a nation that will become important in the chapters to come. What he seems to recognize is the risk that if Israel and Judah begin to go to war with one another, they will weaken each other and make themselves even more vulnerable to what is a growing risk for both of them. While they're wrapped up competing for their own image, their own pride, the real danger grows just outside of their territory. But Amaziah will not listen to this reason, so Joash decides to strike first, and it's a devastating blow. He not only captures Amaziah, the king of Judah, and defeats his army, but he also marches and captures Jerusalem, he pillages the city, and takes all of the resources from the temple itself. Amaziah is apparently eventually released, probably sent back in humiliation and shame to the capital city he's lost, where he is, like his father before him, assassinated. Now, the second king has a much shorter and far less dramatic story. Jeroboam is the son of Jehoash, so we get the next son in Israel. Jeroboam was not attempting to follow God. He seemed to have continued the sins and the practices of the kings of the north, but there are two things that are really interesting about him. We learn that there is a prophet in his midst who is speaking to him the prophecies and the word of God, none other than Jonah. Now, what, part of what makes that so interesting is this explicit statement that there is a prophetic voice in Israel, that God is speaking. And what it does is it highlights the absence of it in the previous story. 
that as Amaziah goes about fighting with Edom and eliminating his political enemies, threatening Israel to the north, not once do we read about a prophet, not once do we read about the word of God spoken to him, not once do we hear God show up in the midst of those stories as a character, an actor. Yet here in the kingdom we imagine more loss, the king who we explicitly told is practicing even worse idolatry, somehow here is a prophet speaking the word of God. And second, we also get in this story a specific mention of God's salvation, his acting. In the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the loss and the hopelessness that had set in in Israel, we read in the middle of the story, the king's story, that God sent a deliverer, a savior, to rescue and preserve them. His death, Jeroboam's, comes without nearly the fanfare. He seems to die of probably old age and is buried with his fathers. So what do we make of these two kings, these two images? One who seems to obey the law and yet is assassinated and humiliated in defeat. One who does not seem all that interested in God and yet is delivered by him and given a prophet to speak God's word. The king of Judah humiliated the king of Israel preserved. Remember, one of the things I said at the beginning is that it's not easy to read these stories and simply say, well, obviously those are the good kings and obviously those are the bad kings. In the same way that it helps us recognize that same temptation and danger in our own day, in our own lives. Well, clearly that's a good person and clearly that's a bad person. Perhaps part of what this chapter does is offer us a warning about being too quick to assign God's approval or God's support to things that seem to be working or that appear to us on the outside as profitable and successful. It's really easy to do that, even in our own day. A big bank account, a long life with perfect health, success in business or even ministry and church. We look and think, well, look at how successful it is. That must be God's hand at work in the midst of it. And yet we look at those who suffer, the afflicted, Well, clearly, they're getting something wrong that the other guy's getting right. But that isn't how this chapter works, nor is it how God shows up in the midst of these two kingdoms, these two kings. The suffering kingdom that is hopeless and despair gets a prophet and mercy, while the proud king who goes around with accomplishment and achievement after achievement ends up humiliated and exposed. I think at the center of these two kings and the images of their life is a question of pride. We've seen kings across Second Kings put their hope in all sorts of things, from their treasure and their gold to buy off other kings and risk, to their armies that they accumulate with their horsemen and chariots, to the idols and the pagan worship that they've accumulated. Now we get to see an image of a king who's swelled by pride and success in his own achievements. A king who begins to believe his own publicity about what he's capable of. Perhaps an image of just raw pride and how it motivates a king to reach for more and more. But the truth is, I think both of these kings are at risk of a certain kind of pride. One king is viewing the world through his success, what he is capable of achieving. The other kings, these two of the the Israel to the north, Joash and Jeroboam, both experience a kind of despair a kind of fear, the coming beast, the risk of things to come, and the hopelessness of their current situation. Both of these views are really questions of pride. 
We tend to only think of pride as that kind of boastful, successful king, the one who has something to brag about, the one who has something to put on display. But at the root of both of these kings' vision, their perspective on life, is a challenge of pride. C.S. Lewis famously said that pride is the complete anti-God state of mind, that the right definition of pride is a life so consumed with self that it no longer has attention or visibility for what God is doing. Pride can be equally real in both our overestimation of ourselves, our achievements, but also in our fixation, our helplessness, our despair, our inability to recognize something better as even possible. We can be proud of what we've done, and we can also be too proud to admit that we need help, to recognize that something beyond us is at stake. And so I think you have that image in these two kings, one blinded by success, the other, though it's subtle, at risk of complete despair and suffering and an absence of God's presence. So how do you avoid these two things? What does it look like to be the kind of king or the kind of person who can manage to avoid both of those pride? Blaise Pascal, the Christian writer, I think has a helpful way of describing it. He says this, Knowing God without knowing our own wretchedness makes for pride, certainly this king of Judah, unable to recognize his need and constantly acting out of the pride of his own potential. But Pascal also writes, knowing our own wretchedness without knowing God makes for despair. Alternatively, knowing Jesus Christ strikes the balance because he shows us both God and our own wretchedness. Both views without God, both lives without God, both prides without God are the place that lead us into risk and danger. Too much of ourselves at the tent center, too much of our own evaluations, our own opinions, our own judgments, and no room left, no attention for what God might be doing both in success and in suffering. What we need is an experience, something that can simultaneously give us the true sense of our own need but also a true sense of what we have in God. You take either of those by themselves and you put yourself in a place of vulnerability. If you see only your need all the time, you find yourself in despair, constantly anxious and afraid. If you see only what you have in God and never the fact you need it, you turn into a kind of religious pride that imagines you have all the right answers, all the right ideas. According to Lewis, a humble person will strike you as a cheerful, intelligent chap who took little real interest in what who took a real interest in what you said to him if you do dislike him this humble person it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily he will not be thinking about humility he will not be thinking about himself at all what lewis has always long pointed out about this idea of pride is that real humility is finding something more interesting than yourself having something at work within your life that is bigger than your own evaluations of success and bigger than your own fears, your own concerns and despair, that your interest has been captured by something that pushes both of those out and suddenly becomes the single source of how you understand yourself and what's happening in the world around you. Do you see what these two kings were thinking about? How each of them was getting fixated on something other than God? What more could he achieve was the question of the first king. What was he really capable of? Having done so much already, consolidated power, eliminated risk, 
expanded the kingdom, taken over nations and capitals, all he could think about was what came next. What thing could I accomplish next? While this other king, more controlled, more wise, and more shrewd, still found himself fixated on things to come. The beast that might just be lurking around the corner. The risk and the vulnerability that they were all in. A nervous kind of preventative action. Strike first, lest you be surprised. The sense of suffering and hopelessness of a people lost. The truth is, we spend most of our lives and most of our time caught in one of those two perspectives. We spend a lot of our day thinking about what we want. What should I do next? What would make my life better? What could I buy or get or achieve or accomplish? And when we're not thinking about those things, we tend to be thinking about the things that are keeping us from getting it. My bank account is too low. The rules are unfair. What happened to me shouldn't have happened to me. The fear and the risk and the anxiety of things to come that you might not even be yet aware of. Fear that paralyzes you or moves you to action preemptively. And with those two concerns what I want and what's keeping me from getting it, a kind of roller coaster ride of pride and despair, pride and despair that keeps us fixated on ourself, our own judgments, our own evaluations. The truth is there's no way off that ride without learning to have a new kind of attention, without something coming along that catches your attention in such a way that it takes away those two attentions your life has been stuck in. That attention is an attention for God, not just rules about following him, not just law that you put into place, not just PR about being a Christian and how well your life's going because of it. It's not just using God as some kind of hack or system to get ahead or to get what you want. What you need is an entirely different kind of attention by which you live by, a kind of humility and honesty that allows you to both recognize your need and the ways in which God is providing it. That is what we have as believers through the death of Christ. This shocking image, this unexpected scene in which our attention is suddenly caught into something that doesn't fit quite right into this world or the questions we've been asking. Your attention turned to something that is suddenly big enough to expose your need. Christ's death, a demonstration of how great our sin was, but at the same time, a demonstration of what God can do with it, how God can redeem it and vindicate it through new life, through resurrection. It's that image and the way in which it captivates your attention, the way in which it fits so oddly into this world, that begins to pull your attention away from yourself and begins to ask a new question in your life. Not just what do I want and what's keeping me from it, but what is God doing? What is God at work doing in my life? It's so easy for that attention to get shifted, for us to lose it. There's that parable Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took it in jars along with their lamps The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps have gone out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us. 
Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourself. But while they were away buying oil, the bridegroom arrived, and the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others came, saying, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore Jesus concluded, Keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Certainly what Jesus was describing was his return, but it wasn't just his return. It was the kind of life that kept an attention for God in that time between. The kind of life that was willing to be wise, to stockpile oil, to do whatever it took to keep the lamp burning within, that they might be prepared and ready, that their attention might be focused on what God is doing and when he is coming again. The truth is, it's been really hard to do that over these last few years, perhaps weeks. There is so much going on that pulls our attention away from God, so much that distracts us from what God is doing, so much to get obsessed with in our own lives and how we want it and what we think and what our opinions are. So easy to fall into a kind of fear and an anxiety and a despair about things to come to let the lamp go out and to find ourselves obsessed with the things of this world. What do I want and what's keeping me from getting it? It's never, in my opinion, been easier to be more optimistic about your own future. We have all the tools and the possibilities, the confidence of technology, yet at the same time we live in this kind of divided reality where it's also never been greater to despair about the brokenness we see at work within the world. To have both of these things a craving for what we could have, and a hopelessness for what's keeping us from having it. To be honest with you, much of what I think is spiraling the world out of control at the moment are those two things, a kind of imagined utopia that would just be possible if we could get everyone to do what we think they should be doing, and the hopeless reality that it never quite works that way, that people never quite get in line and do what they're told. And so we ride that roller coaster in our own lives and in this world, The possibility and the defeat. The possibility and the defeat. The pride and the despair. But we as believers have something else to hold on to. We have a lamp. We have this little flame of light and this oil that keeps it burning into the night. And we are wise enough to keep it going. To not let it go out. To not drift off to sleep. To not forget about it and move on to something else. But to wait by faith to keep hoping and believing, to keep that light burning so that when he comes again, we'll be ready, our attention, and all of the tools required to keep it there before us. We learn to watch and to listen and to wait and to go on believing that God is at work in this world in ways that often the world cannot see or recognize. So we get another chance to do it today, to remind ourselves to remember, to hold on to it, to make sure that flame is burning bright enough to keep going, to pour a little more oil into the lamp if we need it. We get to do it by our worship together, but also by our participation in communion. Paul has those famous words, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Of course, as we have communion with us this morning, those repeated words we hear Jesus say, each time we take it, echoed in those scriptures, do this in remembrance of me. Do this to remind yourself again. Do this to keep remembering. Do this as an act of your commitment to keep that flame burning, to hold on to what you have in God through Christ, that your own pride and your own despair might not rob you of this hope that we have. So we do it this morning to remind ourselves, to focus our attention again, to humble us and to secure us, to remind us of our need and to remind us that we have all things through him. So keep watching, keep waiting, Keep doing it until he comes again.